Hello, I'm Regina Botras and welcome backstage where we talk with theatre makers from actors, directors, writers, theatre heads and beyond. My guest coming out shortly is Ian Darling. It's his first time back on stage in like 40 years. He's been a documentary film director and producer and he's back on stage with The Twins, which is on at the Seymour Centre later this month. But a little bit about him. He is a documentary producer and director. As I said, you may have seen Paul Kelly's Stories of Me or more into the theatre in The Company of Actors, which featured Hugo Weaving, Kate Blanchett and Justine Clark following the production of Hedda Gabler um, for Sydney Theatre Company. He has been involved with Sydney Theatre Company as chair from 2006 to 2010, he was director of the National Institute of Dramatic Art, or NIDA, as we call it. Uh, so he's been around the theatre. He's back on the stage at the theatre. He's made s- numerous documentaries. He is deeply involved in philanthropy. He was the recipient of Australia's Leading Philanthropist Award from Philanthropy Australia in 2017. In 2018, he was made an officer of the Order of Australia for distinguished service to documentary film production, to the performing arts, education and community engagement, to social welfare organisations through philanthropic endeavours. In 2018, he was a recipient of the Byron Kelly Award for Brave, Innovative and Wide-Ranging Pursuit of Excellence. And he's here to talk with me about his life back in the theatre after this time and what it's like in the creative world of Ian Darling. Welcome to Stages. Thanks, Regina. Great to be with you. Thanks for coming on and finding time in your hectic career. What a time. Now, coming back. So you obviously started because I spent all morning reading through your biography and it doesn't mention anything about you on the stage, but I know The Twins is a return for you. So tell me how this all came about and well, where you started on this stage? Actually. Well, I guess I, I guess I started in about 1965. I'm, I'm 58 now, and I remember my first nativity play. And strangely enough, I remember maybe I was four, but yeah, I was going to say you must have been. <laughs> yeah, I remember writing down the complete script, and maybe it was it was short, but I, I I can't even remember what I did yesterday. But I had this uncanny ability just to remember everyone's lines, and without realizing it, that was my probably my first connection with the theatre. And unfortunately, after university. Well, probably fortunately for audiences, but I, I, you know, hadn't trodden the boards since being in a play at uh, at ANU called Boys Own Macbeth in 1983. So that was there was there was quite a gap between uh, being on stage from then through till now when we premiered at the Adelaide Fringe. Gosh, four weeks ago. Yeah, we're in our into our fifth week of the production. Wow. So. Who were you playing in the nativity play? King Herod. Oh. Um, so I don't know whether that all good well for me being a good or bad person. But... Do you remember the lines now? Oh, God, I don't. I've others, but that's... that's... <laughs> <laughs> I, I should. I, I know there was a good Lord in there somewhere, but, uh, but that was about it. I think it's a thing, like, I mean, I know it's something that you just have to do as a, a person on stage, but... People are always astounded with the memory of... Does that memory of yours 
cross over into other areas of your life or is it just about learning the script? Oh, I think it, it's interesting. History is is such a, a powerful thing. And in the twins, we're addressing a lot of the competitive nature that Greg Fleet and I have on stage that I could remember always his opening lines in the plays and remember a lot of the key sequences. And maybe that's a reflection of the fact I haven't done it for all those years and I've retained these really special memories. I think I think we do hold on to things that we love and hold dearly. We try and bury the terrible memories, but we we try and keep alive the things that gave us great pleasure. And certainly stage at school and university, you know, theatre was just one of my great loves. Isn't the twins sort of based on role reversal anyway? So it seems after that you're remembering his lines and <laughs> the battle. Well, there's a lot of that. I think it's, it's really about friendship and, 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 and remembering and forgetting to remember. But yeah, I think you know, we're, we're, we're in, in theory, the play starts and we're sort of typecasting ourselves. Me, as someone who's come from a place of privilege, Greg, who's been battling with heroin for, for most of the last 40 years. And I think as the play goes on, whether it's a role reversal, but we actually realise how joined we are at the hip and how similar our, our yearnings are and our failings and, and our own insecurities. It's certainly not a male chest beating exercise. It's actually uh, almost a, a therapeutic uh, launch into our own frailties as human beings. So where does that connect for you? I think in terms of what what we want and, and, and the purpose we have and the sense of being loved and, and relevant and having a purpose, but also not being judged. Um, there's a huge amount in the play about labels and how we're perceived and how we perceive other people. And I think when one looks at the, the, the problems that exist in society you know, today, just as a general comment, there's so much about this preconceived notion of who someone is and how they behave and how they should be, how they should be perceived. And I think we're almost using ourselves as, as, as bad examples of that, how we've both judged each other in the wrong way as people who were once inseparable as friends. It's, it's hard not to make assumptions or judgments. It's just sort of part of everyday life. Are you giving an answer to that or are you, uh, you know, asking through it to... Uh... I think what we're doing is, and it's quite an interactive play, whilst we're not wanting responses from the audience, we're, we're thinking aloud a lot. And, and it's interesting because people from all walks of life have come up after the show and spoken to us, male and female, about how the themes have connected with them. And I think... That's perhaps one of the most satisfying things about getting back onto the, the stage again is knowing that you're there in the room with, with sort of humanity who are actually thinking about a lot of the same issues that you are. And then you get a chance, you know, it's just so rewarding whether someone likes the play or not, but just knowing that, that there's something that's connected with them and, and that they're talking about it all the way home and into the next day. And that, I think, is what I've always loved about theatre. You know, if it works, that it really does make you think about some of the big you know themes that we're all that we're all facing every day you you in a way then become an audience in some ways because you are then an audience to the audience i suppose and then you grow with it it's immediate Is it, what tell me a little bit about how this sort of happened you've worked with greg like you worked on the stage with greg but then also, did you do a, a documentary with him as well? Oh, I did a short film um, just just last year during COVID called um, called The Comedian, where we invited eight filmmakers around the country to to put together a piece about the importance of art. And so with Greg, we actually the, the, the film I made was was about a comedian without an audience and what that was doing to someone who was in their late fifties 
without an audience and without any real prospects of you know getting back onto stage again. This was at the, the in the depths of COVID, but yeah. but from from our perspective, we literally did every single play we possibly could have done together at school in the seventies, and then we both wanted to go on to NIDA, and we'd arranged to meet. Um, on the day of our auditions, and and Greg went and got in, and uh, and you know we we talk about this in the play, but I went and walked in the front door and walked straight out again, and oh. and I was sort of crippled by fear and expectation, and I didn't know how I would have been able to tell my father that I wanted to be an actor and all these things, and he felt desperately let down, and you know it was interesting when we spoke about it, I didn't realise in many ways, that he actually even blamed me when he got kicked out. <laughs> really? These are the things that, that friends do. Well, he, he was kicked out, um, you know, as he, he reveals because of his heroin use, and he thought actually I would have been a good influence on him. So he only lasted a year at, at NIDA and then went on to be the great sort of stand-up comedian that he, he was. But his real love was was acting, not not stand-up comedy and um, and writing. And so he's had a yearning for that ever since. And so the, the plays that Fleety's done have almost been for him his highlights rather than the incredible international success that he's had as a comedian. But I, I've been looking for him for years and years and we'd get together, you know, every sort of 10 years when I'd find him again. And about five or six years ago, we were at a, a school reunion and we were talking about our experiences and he mentioned a day when we got together in Collins Street, probably five years after school, and I was in a suit. I'd started my career before a filmmaker being, being in the investment stockbroking game, and he was literally destitute that day when I saw him. And I remember saying to him, you know, I wish I was you. And I'd seen him performing the week before at the concert hall in front of 3,000 people, and, and I'd, I was so jealous of him. It's terrible to be jealous of friends, but but I really was, and he was living his dream, and he actually remembered that, that someone was actually validating him at a time when he felt so low and he was looking for his next hit and didn't know where he was going to be sleeping that night. And there's a guy in a suit saying, God, I wish I was you. And then we started talking about that whole notion and the sliding doors elements and the fact that we were just absolute equals at school, yet how different our lives could be five years out of school and how we'd had this constant sort of friendship but also this sense of loss that we we had long periods where we just didn't see each other and so anyway we decided to come back together and do something together and we were working on trying to turn the comedy of errors which we did in 1978 into a two-hander which is a totally ridiculous notion <laughs> we thought we'd do that because we both played the Antiphilus twins in 1978 and so hence this plays the twins and we started talking and we started working it and and we just got distracted and basically what this 90-minute two-hander is, is is the result of the distractions and the difficult, you know, conversations we had and, 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 the, and the tortured relationship we've had and the memory and our own failings and our own questions that, 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 that we have of ourselves. That, uh, at, we're both 58 and we're, we're really questioning, you know, our roles in society and how we've been as, as people and as fathers and as sons and, and what role we've, uh, we've actually played in the community over the last 40 years. So it's actually quite a, it's been quite a, um, a healthy thing to do, but it's, it's sounding very heavy, but it's, it, it, it's, it's actually a, a very funny play looking at the foibles of, uh, of these two old friends. That must have been a turning point for you when you walked out of NIDA. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it was a real sense of loss and I felt that I'd never actually do anything creative again. I, my 
sort of co-lead in the last play I did in Boys Own Macbeth was Tara Maurice and she went on to NIDA and, and again I remember seeing her the night that Strictly Ballroom was uh, released and I was just so excited for her but again it sort of compounded that loss. Many years later I realised I never would have made it, you know, I just, I, I don't have the talent uh, 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 as an actor and, uh, and you know, Greg and Tara really do, um, you know, but I think you do have these misspent beliefs. I thought I was going to be a great um, AFL footballer after I left school, but <laughs> football at university, you know, punched that out of me. <laughs> but, um, but I guess you do have to have that level of self-belief and that sort of soon went. But so after walking out of NIDA, I thought maybe my creative days had gone and sort of through a series of circumstances about 15 years later, I suddenly had the yearning to still go into film. I made a documentary and then as soon as I'd done that, suddenly this whole new world of, of creativity exploded for me and, and I found it impossible to stay in business at that stage. And so for the last 20 years, I've, I've been a documentary filmmaker and that, that's been my, my creative outlet, which I've absolutely loved. So what was that first story you made? It was about the investor Warren Buffett. It was relevant to the way we were investing and he seemed like the good guy on Wall Street and we'd been following him for years and it was really an observational film about myself and uh, my business partner Mark Nelson going over to Omaha, Nebraska to the centre of of the Midwest and discovering what it was that, that led thousands of people every year to literally go on this pilgrimage to Omaha. And it was sort of a, a, an observation of ourselves laughing at ourselves, but it ended up being quite an interesting film that showed all throughout PBS and the States and Buffett loved it. And I thought, wow, I like this. It only took three days to film, but then then I sort of um, tried to, to learn a bit more about it and made sort of quite a few films then all in different sort of styles. But that was the first instance that gave me the permission to sort of take my heels out of business and... Uh, and at that stage, I was uh, I was involved with NIDA as a director of the board, and I was I was involved with the Sydney Theatre Company. So I was I was sort of looking at things from the outside, and then then a few years later, I got more deeply involved with the STC. Firstly, making a uh, documentary in the company of actors, mm. and and that was where I got to spend time with Kate and Andrew. And then I was invited in to actually chair the chair the board and the foundation, and that was just a really wonderful period of being more closely immersed with theatre, but um, but certainly not on the stage. It's certainly a, a, an interesting time for theatre and it, it, it uh, symboled a change, I think, in the way uh, that theatre was well, being produced. It was the beginning of a new time, I think. What what did you observe from your side of things? I, it was interesting because I, um, when I first started, Robin Nevin was the artistic director and it was wonderful seeing the rigour with which Robin not only sort of applied herself still as a, as a working actor, but, a, but also as someone who was programming. And at that stage, she built um, the first ensemble, the Actors Company. And um, that was very interesting, seeing this, this sense of how we, we could try and bring a group of, of actors together to work on a whole series of productions over a season. And I think like all these things, it's expensive and the funding just wasn't there to sustain it. Kate and Andrew brought in a, a different model. They brought a group of, of younger, less experienced actors from more diverse backgrounds together called The Residents, and, and they did a lot of experimental theatre. And, and that was interesting too, but again, sort of funding was difficult. So I think what I observed was, unlike with Steppenwolf or many of the European companies, is mm -hmm. the, just the funding there to have that sort of 
level of rigor. And I'm not sure that the audiences really wanted it. I think in Australia, where it's a smaller community, I think I think audiences do like a variety of actors on stage. Uh, whilst there are incredible actors who are involved with both these these uh, ensembles, that I think at the end of the day, over a season, the audiences were perhaps more yearning for a complete variety of uh, of different faces in each show. But they were they were really important experiments, and I wouldn't say they failed, but but they weren't sustainable. The other so, thing I, I noticed yeah. too was how important it was to take theatre to the world. I observed through the film in the company of actors seeing Hedda Gablup going to going to Brooklyn, and that was so thrilling. Seeing a traditional play that had been adapted by Andrew with an extraordinary cast, and just how it was embraced by a New York audience. The second one was Streetcar Named Desire, with again Kate mm. and Chet and, and uh, Joel Edgerton. Joel Edgerton, sorry, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> And I remember the the night that that opened in Washington at the Kennedy Centre, and it was a month into Obama's first period of his presidency, and Washington was alive. And seeing that show there, an American classic, being performed by an extraordinary Australian cast, and the way not only Ben Brantley um, re- responded to it, but but the critics and the audiences, it was. It was so thrilling to see what a group of Australian artists could do to the world and, and what that production did, even in a diplomatic sense of, of how it, uh, it enabled connections in Washington to actually get together. And it was all through, through art. But, but that, was, that was one of the, the highlights of spending time at the STC, just seeing, seeing how proud we were of taking Australian theatre to the world. And I think that's proven to, well, it's virtually impossible at the moment, but, yeah. but that's, that's proving to be more difficult. But I'd love to see those days where, where funding was there to take the best of Australian theatre to the world, small and large. Look, that would would have been must have been terrifying at the time as well, you know, taking a classic back to the their own and seeing it on stage. But on the other hand, do you think it is more international now because of the change in like online and what? I, I've got two questions because I want to ask you also what came out of that uh, documentary of um, the importance of art with without an audience or Greg Fleet without an audience, like. What happens to theatre without an audience? Well, it, it just doesn't exist. Yeah. I mean, that was the thing. And, and you know, for these for these actors who uh, who were, you know, they, were, they weren't getting the, the, the job keeper, but basically they felt that the world, you know, governments around Australia were just overlooking them. And I think that's almost still the case, that, yes, there's a lot of money going into, into supporting these foreign films that are coming in, but at the, the end of Australian independent film and theatre, the support is just, you know, so woefully underdone. And there's a sense that, oh, COVID's out of the way, that everyone's back to work, but it's not. And these incredibly talented artists out there who are trying to work in film and dance and theatre and music, there's just not the, the, the safety net there. And I think I wouldn't say that this film initiative we did made much of a difference, but I think it, it again, sort of humanised the fact that these are these are individuals who have to, have to pay rent and, and eat and... And, and they work, you know, in a piecemeal way because, you know, they've got to keep auditioning for jobs. And we've got to do so much more to, to look after our artists in, uh, in these challenging times as well as good times. Indeed. So back to the twins. Mm. You say it's connecting you, you and Greg, connected by your privilege and, and his heroin addiction. What is that connection? What is the, the yeah, what is that connection? 
I think in in a in a, 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 a at a surface level is we're both very uncomfortable with those titles, and we right. we both have to unpack them, and we both cringe when when we're put into a box. So there's this shame sort of about certain... Yeah, yeah, it is. It's about shame and it's about guilt. And it's not about, you know, seeking, asking for sympathy. I mean, privilege is a, it's a very difficult thing to to talk about. But I thought, I'm going to try and do it, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it's not... It's absolutely not about extracting sympathy. It's just about trying to unpack what it means and see where our points of connection are. And And I think that's, in many ways, what I've tried to do with all the films and things I've been involved with with art is actually try and find points of connection rather than than points of division. And, and I think that's perhaps why it's connecting with the audiences, that so many people will come in with crossed arms looking at both of us. And, and, and I've sort of seen over the course of the 90 minutes that, you know, a lot of those arms get uncrossed. And that's, I think, perhaps because people are thinking about their own situation and their own prejudices and their own beliefs and their own their own discomfort you know because we 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 all have labels and and we use them very carelessly too i think you know the last film i did the final quarter was was about about you know racism in australia and the the, the terrible treatment of adam goods but as much as anything it showed how loose we are with our own language and the power of words and and how labels can be devastatingly damaging to people and how careful we have to be and so there I am feeling uncomfortable about having a title around privilege but you know it, it actually stems from an examination of you know the impact of when you are called all sorts of names. It sounds also like privilege and and addiction are this they're almost out of your hands in a lot of ways they're not. And, and it's such a such a good observation because I think that's the thing is is we feel like we feel most uncomfortable when things are out of our hands and we're judged and what does that mean and how do we act differently and does it really matter and why do we worry so much about what people think or what we what we say but i think we're all human and you know we all we all still remember the derogatory nicknames we got in the in the playground and those things those things stick much more than the punch we may have got in the back of the head or something like that and uh, and I think that's sort of a it's it's a it's been an interesting sort of uh, wake up call as well. So is this the beginning of the the new Ian Darling's career path? <laughs> I am so not an actor, you know. I think it's 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 given me. Uh, I mean, I've always had the greatest respect for, for 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 the acting profession, and many of my my closest friends are actors. But but I don't think I've really quite understood that that sense of around four o'clock every day when that feeling of terror comes on (laughs) something that's just hanging over you every single day and the sense of responsibility uh, and and the weight uh, the weight of that responsibility to do your absolute best but no I think um, I think uh, my my acting days probably should have been left uh, on that (laughs) Stage in 1983, but that said, it's been a it's been an extraordinary experience, and and you know I feel very um, supported uh, by Fleety, who's such a seasoned performer. But so it's been yeah a great privilege getting out there on stage every night, but such a joy to see, as I say, the conversations that are that are stemming from this piece, and it's it's an unusual piece. We call it Theatre Verite yeah. because it's. It's us playing ourselves. And I guess that's, as a documentary filmmaker, that was sort of something I was really interested in exploring, a, a story that, that was very real. And, and people actually feel that they're, that they're just in this private 
conversation with us and I think that's where they can feel so uncomfortable because they shouldn't be they shouldn't be a part of this conversation. So they're the fly on the wall watching you. Absolutely, absolutely. And that, those are the films I love the most. But no, I think you know your limitations. It's it's required so much more emotional and physical energy than I'd require than I ever thought <laughs> it was was necessary. But I also thought, think, no, nah, there's there's only so much that the uh, that the uh, theatre going public can do. You know, they they don't need to see me on stage. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't wait to see you on stage, Ian, darling. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been great chatting with you, Jane. Thank you for, for, for having me on. Well, that was my guest, Ian Darling, performing on stage at the Seymour Centre in The Twins, which is on from the 30th of March. And The Twins is written by Sarah Butler, Ian Darling and Greg Fleet and directed by Terry Serio and Sarah Butler. What a great conversation.